My name is Gillian McIntyre, and I coordinate the adult programs here at the gallery. And I'm delighted tonight to present a panel discussion, uh, Architecture as Spectacle. I think many of us are very interested in what is going on, not just in Toronto, but all around the world. All these spectacular buildings, and how are they used? What's it like for a human being to use them? What effect do they have on the city, on the neighborhood? I have a particular interest also in suburbia, and I think there's one suburban building that might be mentioned tonight. Um, we have tonight John Bentley Mays, a journalist I'm sure many of you know, who is going to moderate this panel. The panelists are sitting in the front row because they're all making presentations using images, and it's much nicer for them to be able to sit and look at it. So we have Michael Awad will start, then we'll have Christian Giroux and Daniel Young, and then Lisa Rochon. When they've all finished, the panelists will all come back up here and have a discussion, which hopefully you will be able to join in. So before we begin, I'd like to start, invite John Bentley Mays to come and introduce the panelists. Good evening. I'd like to join my greetings to Gillian McIntyre's and say that I'm very glad to see you all here tonight. This is certainly something that I'm interested in, uh, this topic and that, uh, that, I'm, that it's very interesting to be in a crowd of people who share that interest. Words always matter, but they matter in different ways to different generations, in different places, and at different times. When I was growing up, the word spectacle meant a show, like a circus performance or a parade of drag queens. Then in late 1967, in the midst of the youth revolts, the urban spectacles that were happening throughout the world, there appeared French thinker Guy Debord's book, The Society of the Spectacle. And the, world abruptly, and the word spectacle abruptly ceased to mean just show business. In Debord's radiant and hugely influential meditations, the spectacle, the spectacle became the newest form of the commodity, an aspect of a new economy of seduction and illusion. Under these conditions of advanced capitalism, the image became detached from substance, and assumed a spectral autonomy, bewitching and betraying at the same time. The word spectacle persists into our own time with this ambiguous pedigree. Yes, it can mean something positive and joyful. We speak of certain art, certain fashions, events, and buildings as spectacular, meaning terrific. But the expression as applied to architecture and urban culture also has this dark edge to it as something that could be wonderful when viewed one way, but could also be trickery, and perhaps we're never quite sure. It is this remarkable idea and the architecture of spectacle that we'll be unpacking this evening, exploring with the guidance provided by four thinkers on this topic, who I'm going to be introducing now. What we'll do is, is after the introductions, these people will come up and do their presentations, and then we will have uh, the chance for a discussion among the presenters, and then after that, uh, questions and answers. Michael Awad is an artist, designer, architect, and urbanist with a birthday tomorrow, <laughs> who studied architecture at the University of Toronto and at the University of Syracuse, and he has a Master's of Urban Design from the University of Toronto. Since 2001, he has exhibited his work in Toronto and internationally, representing Canada at the 2002 Venice Architectural Biennale. And in 2005, he exhibited at the Art Gallery of Ontario in David Moose's entire city project. 
He is currently working on a commissioned installation for Toronto Pearson Airport, a building very dear to my heart. And I think that uh, I look forward very much to seeing what Michael is going to do with it. The next two of our panelists are going to be presenting their works together because they work together. And so that made sense. Christian Giroux and Daniel Young uh, have been jointly involved in a critical review of the tradition and experience of modernism since 2003. Christian studied studio art at the University of Victoria and the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. He is an artist and assistant professor in the School of Fine Art and Music at the University of Guelph. His creative partner, Daniel Young, studied critical geography at the University of Toronto. And Christian and Daniel are having, a sh having shows in May at Diaz Contemporary Art and at YYZ Artist Outlet. Our last speaker of the evening is Lisa Rocham, a well-known journalist, author, and teacher with, wide, with a wide-ranging portfolio. Lisa is, of course, well-known to everyone as the architecture critic of the Globe and Mail. She is also the author of Up North, Where Canada's Architecture Meets the Land, a book that was published this last fall. She is an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Architecture, Landscape, and Design, and she has most recently done there a seminar on the reconstruction of devastated cities. And she lectures often across the country and is now working on a six-part television series on great cities of the world. Michael Awad, Christian Giroux, and Daniel Young, and Lisa Rochon. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. Thank you all for coming. Well, it's good to see a lot of familiar faces. I'm going to I'm going to discuss uh, spectacle and architecture, not one as the other, but uh, as an interchangeable uh, term. And really, the what I'm the thesis was built uh, around the importance and urban power of spectacle. Uh, while I'm not a big fan of spectacle myself, I do recognize it's. Uh, incredibly important uh, role to play in the building of cities. First, spectacle is architecture, um, whereas there are, obviously there are many spectacle types being uh, you know, the sporting events, uh, Olympics, uh, theater uh, of all sorts. Architecture is simply one of those spectacle types. And uh, I happened to be in Las Vegas earlier this week for 24 hours working. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a bit of a uh, Last-minute uh, uh, trip. It was um, flew in one night, worked all night, worked all day, flew out the next day. And uh, Vegas became uh, it, it changed the entire way I was conceptualizing uh, spectacle. Uh, as as Vegas matured, uh, it was clear that it couldn't be just a place for gambling anymore. The first, let's say, three or four decades of its life, it was principally a place to gamble, and people came for that reason because it was the only place to go. But with competition with other cities, with competition amongst individual casinos, uh, Las Vegas had to employ other forces to draw people. And they didn't choose a city beautiful movement. They didn't choose rebranding. They didn't hire big-name designers they chose spectacle. It, and with billions of dollars on the line and an issue that had been studied uh, to death, 
uh, of, all, of all the ways that they chose to reinvent themselves, they chose spectacle. And I'm just going to tour you through uh, Las Vegas briefly. In, in Las Vegas, spectacle is imported. And within a few blocks, you can visit the Dojo's Palace in Venice. You can take a gondola ride. And clearly, this relies on the historic importance of Venice. It's borrowing. It's standing on the shoulders of giants to, to, uh, to exploit the issue of spectacle and to draw people in. Because really, inside those front walls of each of these places, the hotels and the casinos and the lounge acts are exactly the same. A block away, you go to Paris. They have a half-sized version of the tower. They have here in the base, uh, can't quite see it, unfortunately, quite dark, but uh, they also have a half-sized version of the Paris Opera Hall, uh, which I think is a performance space and gift shop. Down the street, you can visit uh, a castle. And I was told by one of the people uh, in the hotel that this was a real copy of the Disney castle that Walt Disney made, uh, perhaps uh, you know, innocently not knowing that that, in fact, was a copy of an Austrian castle uh, somewhere in the Austrian Alps from the, from the, mid, uh, from the, from the mid-Renaissance, or even perhaps even earlier. Uh, this is a small version of New York, uh, clear, very spectacular. I mean, you know, all the major landmarks, it's a half-sized version of uh, Statue of Liberty. Uh, and uh, if that's not enough, then they've added a roller coaster that takes you on a tour of Manhattan within about you know, a 60-second uh, trip. Uh, now, clearly, this wasn't spectacular enough because down the strip, they built a tower, about a 30-story tower, and put a roller coaster on top. So if this wasn't enough, there's, there's more. It turns at night. During the day, Vegas is really quite a dusty and bleached and bleak place, and you really don't want to be outside. But during at night, it turns into something unbelievable. You know, it's a desert city, uh, and, and really spectacle became the industry of Las Vegas. There is nothing else in Las Vegas except, except spectacle. And remember, this is what's drawing. This is, it is on the basis of the spectacle that people make the decision of which hotels and casinos to frequent because they're, ultimately they're all the same. At the top of the spectacle, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Caesar's Palace, the Roman uh, adopting of the Roman spectacle. Again, it's the borrowing of history. Uh, there's uh, Caesar welcoming you at the front gates. They have a half-sized version of the Colosseum, which is where Celine Dion plays four nights a week. Um, sold, out, uh, sold out until uh, May 13th, I believe. And clearly at night it becomes this, uh, uh, it collapses, the amount of, sp the space collapses and it becomes this extremely dense, rich experience at night against basically a desert sky of black. At the top, I think at the top of this spectacle, at the, at the scale of spectacle is the Luxor, which is a full-size version. Uh, it is a full-size pyramid, glass pyramid. Uh, and you could see in front here the, um, the pyramid-shaped topiary that's uh, hiding this parking, uh, parking device. Um, th this is, as I think, as, ex as extreme as Vegas has gotten. Uh, there's probably room to move. There's probably some, you know, this is the entrance to the Luxor. You enter between the two paws of the Sphinx. Um, the Sphinx is also a drive-in um, 
uh, valet parking uh, drop-off. This is the valet who's running back to your car. You enter. It's a big carved-out pyramid. All the hotel rooms are on the outside. And then at the base of this huge pyramidal space, this void inside, is a basically an Egyptian town, uh, temples and all. You can see the it's all perched within this space. Now, and th this was an important moment for me, an interesting find. This is the King Tut Tomb and IMAX Theater. <laughs> now, uh, what was important for me is that, that an IMAX theater in itself does not require, you know, it doesn't inherently require uh, a layer of spectacle because it is, the, the actual product is spectacular. But because it's Vegas, it's not enough to leave something alone. One has to apply a spectacle to it. And it's at this point historically, I think, or perhaps, uh, let's say, culturally, that uh, I want to shift and talk about architecture as spectacle. Because spect architecture, in, in the previous example, uh, architecture was simply a means to replicate spectacle that it was historically uh, already, uh, let's say, condoned. It was a uh, spectacle that through, uh, through history had been copied over and over again and has uh, acquired a certain status. And it was simply adopted at usually half scale and brought to Vegas. I think recently, and I believe very recently, just in the last, let's say, two decades, architecture has become the spectacle itself. Early modernism, while being uh, monumental and uh, to many designers, to many architects, very beautiful, was not particularly spectacular. And I believe it started with this building here. Bilbao had no references. It was itself, by itself, a unique piece. And uh, like important architecture of the past, it created something. And I believe most architectural spectacle since Bilbao is simply a copy of Bilbao. I think, I think Frank Gehry has established Bilbao as a new spectacle. Now, the ROM, I believe to be, an ex uh, for all intents and purposes, a copy of Bilbao. Without the sophistication of the curves, without the ability to make graceful space, uh, it does carry this language of the fractured form, uh, rather an alien language, which by virtue of its uniqueness, a quote, uniqueness, um, is deemed to be spectacular. But uh, as we know, copies are copies. In this case, the, um, the architecture is being employed to, uh, to, let's say, propel forward the agenda of, of the museum. Uh, um, uh, an agenda which, by its own virtue, because a museum is, you know, it's about its objects and its artifacts, and the relationship between the viewer and the artifact is quite a profound and simple one. By its own virtue, a museum need, doesn't need spectacle, but in this case, spectacle was applied to it. In much the same fashion that the same stylistic uh, uh, intentions, this stylistic language, had been applied to the Badashu Museum uh, more than a decade earlier. And you can judge for yourself whether or not applying that language to a museum that houses shoes uh, was appropriate. W you know, was spectacle employed in a, uh, in a tactful way? Was it employed in a successful way? Architecture spectacle also, it borrows from other architecture. Uh, 
This is a new form of architecture. It's only about 50 years old. And even though it was not made by designers, it is still spectacular. And the, the issue of history and repeating itself and borrowing, this, this, exact, this is the exact design uh, technology that we've employed in Ontario Place in the mid-70s to make what was and still is a spectacular architecture and which has been borrowed again to make OCAD. And OCAD is a particular, it's another interesting example because it's an art college. And college, a school, a place which is predicated on teaching and knowledge, an art college which requires studio space and faculty space and lecture rooms and workshops, uh, instead of making, let's say, a conventional, a great conventional building, this institution has chosen to make a spectacle. And it is a trade-off in this case, uh, to the point where there are oftentimes uh, lectures have to be held here at the AGO because, the, because OCAD doesn't have space. Now, they made that decision to have spectacle over architecture, over, over conventional good architecture. Uh, and that was a decision that, in retrospect, has done them well. Every tour bus that drives around downtown stops at OCAD, and there are people around the world that now know OCAD because of what it looks like and because of the technology it employs and because of the references it's made. And here we are, I want to end with the Opera House. This is Toronto's Opera House. Now Opera, as a, now to, I should perhaps make a disclaimer that uh, the comments presented here are for entertainment purposes only and do not reflect in any way the board of directors of the AGO or the AGO staff and uh, yes. I'm not a fan of opera. I'm not a fan of ballet. Um, but for those people who are, I believe they, were, they deserve more than this. This is not a criticism of Jack Diamond and uh, Don Schmidt and associate architects. They've made a fabulous building. They have made a good modern building with the limitations that they were given by the opera company. So. I hold the board of directors of the opera company solely responsible for this fiasco. <laughs> opera, which by its own nature embodies pageantry and fantasy and richness and texture, deserves a building which itself is a spectacle. I think buildings should look like what they are. This building while being well built, I think, under very difficult constraints. I don't believe this is a spectacular building. It doesn't telegraph spectacle. And I think there's a danger of the building falling into, uh, falling into uh, uh, a forgotten group of buildings around the city. The question, the question I would pose hypothetically is what would happen to this building if the Toronto Opera Company folded up? If it disappeared, what would happen to the building? Well, as I thought about this, I became quite uh, supportive of the building because of, its, uh, because of its lack, its specific lack of spectacle, because really this building could become almost anything. It has all the hallmarks of the best airport strip office building. It has the hallmarks of some of the best multi-story parking garages in the city. 
So the danger here is if, if we don't employ spectacle where we need to employ spectacle, if we don't make buildings look and telegraph and communicate their purpose ac accordingly, then we're left with a lot of anonymous buildings. And ultimately, this building could just as easily become all the type of anonymous buildings that we don't like. And I think we've lost an opportunity here uh, to employ spectacle in perhaps one of the few places where everyone would support it. Thank you very much. Okay, well, um, uh, I just want to say uh, by way of preamble that um, uh, as John mentioned, Daniel and I have a collaborative practice uh, which goes back a few years to about uh, uh, 2003 and our work is really born out of uh, a continual dialogue and this dialogue has its many points of agreement and, but also its points of tension. Uh, so we're, we, we may not always be uh, in, in agreement this evening but we, we'll do our best to at least not uh, talk over uh, uh, one another while we, while we attempt to, to share this mic. Um, as, uh, as, as John mentioned, uh, I have a studio art, very traditional studio art uh, background, and uh, Daniel uh, just completed his degree in, in urban geography at, at U of T. So uh, we, we, neither one of us trained as, as uh, architects nor, nor uh, studied architectural history per se. So we're not here tonight to begin by reanimating the terms of debate around uh, spectacular architecture per se. Uh, but we do want to talk about some projects that we've done, as well as uh, the projects of some of our, our uh, peers uh, locally, uh, some of who we, we uh, curated into a, a show last year, uh, all of which we feel have a bearing uh, on, the, on the general discussion tonight. Um, uh, just about our show quickly, um, uh, which uh, we curated a year and a half ago at the Doris MacArthur Gallery at uh, U of T Scarborough. It was called uh, Constructive Folly. And uh, uh, the, the um, participants in that, uh, in that show, uh, along uh, with us, uh, bear a kind of a, a general interest, something that, that, that is, uh, 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 I think, germane to the last 40 years of sculptural and installation practice, uh, which is um, in, uh, interest not in, in the representation of architecture per se, but in the active confrontation between an active or a dynamic viewer and, uh, and real space between the body and the built environment. Uh, we're also, of course, interested in, uh, in the role of physical forms and the production of social organization, uh, the construction of contemporary subjectivity, but, but I think dominantly for Dan and I, uh, uh, we're interested in the polemics and conversations uh, between objects uh, at the level of form, simply put. And, uh, but uh, we want to il illustrate that a little bit better by going through uh, a few projects, beginning with uh, this one, uh, which uh, we had at the Diaz Gallery last, uh, last fall. And this is called Hayes House. It's, it's a, a maquette for public proposal um, for a public work uh, that we imagine being situated in a kind of a mountainous uh, public park. I think we were originally thinking of BC, but uh, when we got around to pouring the plaster, it kind of turned into uh, the, the Okanagan Valley or something like that. We'd, not, not quite so mountainous. mountainous. <clears throat> uh, 
And uh, we called it uh, the Hayes House uh, in honor of our good friend Ken Hayes, who actually uh, collaborated a little bit on the design. And uh, just quickly, uh, I think it, it's pretty evident from the image itself is that uh, we wanted a very monumental sculptural form which occupied or held space uh, the same way as, uh, as a building would, that we would delineate uh, the contours of these three uh, rectangular uh, uh, cubic volumes uh, in a way kind of generally embodying uh, uh, one of the defining um, principles of, of, of arch architectonic play, you know, so dear and near to the hearts of, of, of modernist architecture. And of course, we were thinking of people like, you know, Richard Neutra and Wright and, and all the classics uh, to, to form this kind of quintessentially uh, modernist form. Um, and we were interested in the phenomena of, of gestalt, how the, uh, as the viewer encounters this piece, as they're walking up the mountain path, uh, uh, would uh, start to recognize volumes where, of course, there's only empty space, and, of course, where perspectival uh, uh, forms uh, delineate uh, 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 a volume, uh, you start to fill in the blanks, uh, as it were. So you would pass through this building on your way up, up, uh, up the building, and we have a little figure here. Uh, this is uh, the um, maquette in full and you uh, it's supposed to suggest three positions that you can imagine yourself uh, entering uh, the um, you know uh, the valley and the mountainous region. Uh, first one is this little uh, hiker at the bottom where you're being subjected by the powerful modernist form and then uh, there's a third position, the pathway up the uh, hill goes um, through the building itself. And the second position is um, inside the building. There's someone uh, there. Maybe you can't see them in this photograph. Um, and uh, you can imagine yourself maybe coming to your private villa or um, coming to your uh, friend's uh, house um, for uh, dinner and uh, you are um, in the this is kind of our, our perverse appreciation of um, modernist architecture because it's in a public park but you could uh, um, so uh, yeah, well, when you're in the middle of the building um, you can uh, it sort of empowers you with the uh, um, sub you know the, the yeah I think we're trying to set up a, a kind of a collision between two different uh, ways of experiencing nature in the valley. One being uh, as as a hiker, uh, responsive, or, you know, thinking, appreciating uh, the public space, but then caught in this uh, kind of conflict, perhaps, uh, of the desire of imagining yourself within uh, uh, it as a private space, as as uh, as a private villa. As Dan was saying, of course, as you enter through it, you can never, of course, uh, actually enter the building. It is only conceptually. Uh, delineated, but we're we're interested in this in this larger effect uh, on the viewer, and also uh, in tapping into maybe uh, a, a little bit of the prestige system that is built into uh, uh, public space and um, ele the, the elevations uh, of, of space. Of course, the higher you're up, uh, you, you can't help but feel uh, the value of the view, uh, you know, uh, going up as you ascend up the mountain. And so there's a third point, uh, the top of the hill, where um, you could uh, just sort of survey the modernist form itself against the uh, forms of nature. 
Okay, so this was uh, one project in which we tried to deal perhaps head-on with, with architectural scale itself. I think in a general sense, we've also been very interested in uh, contemporary design and, uh, and how that's manifest in sculpture, uh, sorry, in, in architecture. And to do that, we, we, we developed uh, uh, two uh, companion objects uh, that we like to affectionately think of as uh, HVAC satellites, uh, HVAC referring to heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, those, those systems, of course, which are the life support systems of any, uh, of any building. And this is uh, the first piece. Uh, this is at a show in Winnipeg, and this is uh, Excel. Um, so Excel, it's a cube made of uh, two-foot by two-foot fluorescent light fixtures that one would normally find in an office building. Uh, interlaced with uh, office tile. And uh, uh, when we conceived this piece, I was spending a lot of time in Mississauga. And uh, I'd be driving along the 401, and I'd get to check out um, those cubic office buildings. And, um, you know, they sort of control the space around them. They give off this fluorescent light. And these um, are uh, these p particular fluorescent light fixtures, they're made of... Um, plasticized aluminum and uh, so they give off this very um, uh, white sterile light and um, I was interested in uh, making a work of art that sort of about the world's unhappiness and uh, sort of uh, took up the entire or somehow was able to encompass the entirety of the gallery um, so uh, oh I know and we were uh, I was also interested in the cube as a sort of dissonant uh, form within our contemporary design aesthetic of uh, dynamicism and uh, organicism. So uh, Christian and I are having this discussion about form and, um, and, and fluidity. We apologize that they're, they're coming up a little darker on the screen. Um, this was the companion object that we wanted to position relative to Excel. This is called Access, uh, clearly. Um, uh, made of steel ducting, uh, and we began by uh, wanting to kind of radically change our design approach, doing something which is uh, perhaps a little more um, uh, coming from an earlier era of modernist abstraction, where we m imagined a four-foot cube of empty space and then uh, tried to wrap uh, ducting around it in a way which remained uh, formally interesting, no matter which uh, viewpoint uh, you examined it, it from. So whichever uh, a point from which you approach it or, or look through the form or so on, uh, it'll, it'll uh, remain uh, formally interesting as you look through and, uh, and around it. Now, originally we, we thought, okay, well, this is our, our very fluid um, expressionist uh, 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 antidote to uh, uh, excel. And uh, ultimately, in the end, we were quite surprised in that the connotations for this piece were actually much more oppressive uh, uh, design-wise than, uh, than Excel. Uh, it, it kind of reverberates or connotes uh, uh, something like a sick building syndrome or something, wherein uh, the air contained by the system endlessly kind of circulates uh, within itself. And uh, from this angle, it looks like bad uh, corporate artwork or perhaps the um, GameCube logo. But yeah, we wanted something somewhere between Henry Moore and GameCube logo, <laughs> I think is what we were <laughs> shooting at. Um, as we uh, mentioned before, uh, so, so that's uh, our general, uh, some general terms of discussion around design. Uh, we organized the show Constructive Folly in uh, 2004, right when we felt um, 
the hype around celebrity architecture uh, was really at its uh, most frenetic peak, or at least it seemed within within our, our community. And um, so we started out not with a, a thesis for the show exactly. We, we wanted to uh, allow the artists uh, that we turned to begin to uh, articulate an overall uh, a sensibility for the show. And we found a very wide range of forms of mediation and rearticulation and critique of, of contemporary architecture. And we're, uh, we know we're limited for time here, so we're just going to focus on uh, uh, just a few examples quickly, one by uh, Daniel Borns and Jennifer Marmon, uh, Lila Rye and Oli Mishenko, but we do uh, want to uh, give special note to uh, some fa fantastic artists we end the show, Adrian Blackwell, James Carl, Galen Kelmer, Phil Grauer, and David Deutsch. Um, this was the first proposal that we received for, from Daniel Borns and Jennifer Marmon. Uh, which is, uh, I guess, on, the, on, on its surface, maybe the most uh, direct and, and vulgar critique uh, 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 for uh, spectacular architecture and, and, its, uh, uh, <laughs> and the uh, desire created for it uh, here in, in Toronto. And this originally was uh, anticipated was going to be a particle board box, uh, certainly hearkening to minimalism, uh, or maybe Venturi's uh, decorated shed with the addition of the swoosh. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this is a titanium swoosh, and this is when the AGO was um, going to have titanium cladding. And then it was maple, and now we have glass. Yeah. So um, uh, they couldn't make this particle, particle board box, so... Um, even this was too much. They got something even better. They got a, um, a prefabricated building, um, uh, eight feet by eight feet uh, inside, and uh, it's made by American military contractors. Or contractors who do most of the work for the American okay, military. Sir. So it's a, it's a nice conflation of the industrial military and, and the uh, banal bureaucratic uh, uh, corporate. And so this is called the Dark Crystal, which is named after uh, the Jim Henson uh, film. And uh, the Dark Crystal is um, a big ring pop. And uh, so this is a critique. Okay, this is a prefabricated uh, building. And so it's a critique of the prefabricated nature of uh, the museum and of uh, artist practices and how um, ultimately uh, they provide this sort of banal frame for the rarefied uh, work of art. And my, my favorite was the drop, it was complete with drop ceiling and, and fluorescent lighting as, as you can see there, it's very nice. Uh, the show also included a work called Project by Lila Rye uh, which uh, continuing um, here with the, 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 the classic architectural cube. This was a, a two-point uh, projection. We're actually, uh, sorry for this documentation, but we're looking into the corner of a room, uh, and uh, although the, the, uh, the images are keystoned so that they diminish, there's an illusion created whereby the image seems to be popping out like it's a cube coming straight out uh, into the room. It's not unlike maybe some projected works you may have seen by uh, James Turrell. Uh, but basically, uh, we see the interior of a dollhouse. It's black and white. Uh, and in the background, you can see uh, the face of a small child who uh, is looking in through the window and then reaching in and uh, moving uh, objects around over the course of a seven-minute video loop. And, uh, and, and, the, and the child is the, really the source of color within this uh, presentation. So it's, um, there's this sort of, it's about the gray drudgery of uh, domestic life. And uh, but you know the uh, the giant child injecting uh, color and joy and by circulating the objects throughout the piece. Yeah, and it, I think it intimates uh, or, or suggests uh, the process by which uh, 
the child develops an understanding of the world through through object relations by continually moving and circulating social reproduction. That, yeah, that too. And we want to finish off with uh, a, a few works by uh, Olya Mishenko, who has received a lot of uh, critical interest and attention uh, recently. Uh, just a quick quick description. I just want to say. Uh, that uh, what, what, one of the things that I always attracted me to her work was this very ordered uh, presentation of, of a seemingly uh, chaotic or, or entropic uh, uh, kind of world where we always have this very nice architectural um, isometric uh, kind of elevated perspective looking down on this uh, society and increasingly figures have been disappearing from her work but if you look closely you can see the legions of little boys and sometimes accompanied by uh, little dogs that are always in the process of building and assembling and disassembling uh, uh, this world. There's a, certainly a, a tone of innocence to, to the work, uh, that it looks like a, a, a children's illustration of some kind, uh, but at the same time there's, there's a note that's not, maybe not sinister, but, but that uh, the, the forms of, of development, the, the buildings, uh, uh, the scale suggests something, uh, an order of organization, which is uh, not like children. Uh, suggests that uh, of the mentality of a, a hive or uh, of, of a cult or something like that, which which I find interesting. Uh, I've always been a fan of that uh, Marx quote, um, where the the best of uh, well, the worst of architects is better than the best of bees because they construct the building in their head first, and it doesn't look like there's any architects involved in these structures. They're just sort of randomly being built. Um, uh, uh, oh, and none of these uh, drawings were uh, in our uh, show. Uh, these are all uh, recent drawings. This one's just a few days old. And um, uh, we saw the uh, Frank Gehry exhibition here at um, the AGO a couple days ago. And uh, uh, I, was, I found uh, Frank Gehry's um, MIT campus building. It uh, very much reminded me of Olia's drawings and their uh, how, like, uh, and the kind of spatial complexity and how they can really ex ex exhaust the viewer and in, in trying to like absorb, um, and, and there's also a kinetic energy that they both really share, and um, perhaps also the, the suggestion of, of, uh, or the suggestion at least of, of a contingency of forms that are built. Uh, that are started and then abandoned, re-inhabited, reworked, so that uh, the master plan is is of such great complexity, of course, that it can't be uh, can't be fully charted. Perhaps we should leave it there. Okay. Thank you. Hi. Good evening. I'm going to just undo this computer and put mine in. Well, I'm not really sure when spectacle architecture began, but I do know it began a long time ago, and that it has been used throughout the ages as a powerful uh, piece of political propaganda. Um, I'm thinking of some of Hitler's uh, commissions. And of course, uh, one of religious doctrine. I'm thinking of the Hagia Sophia uh, monument uh, built within the seat of the Ottoman Empire, 12th century. I'm thinking also of the Crystal Palace, which was constructed in 1851. It was a masterwork by the British architect Joseph Paxton. 
And within that structure, it was spectacular uh, for the use of glass, a million square feet of glass uh, to cover a remarkable iron structure. And so it was an idea about how architecture could exemplify and express a prowess and a superiority. And it was used by the British uh, within this, uh, that particular world exhibition to kind of lord uh, the British power over the so-called less civilized countries. In the 1960s and the 1950s, uh, spectacle took place, took root within infrastructure, within the highways that um, cut across um, high, uh, downtowns which bisected uh, cities, uh, destroying them much. But these were remarkable works of spectacular infrastructure. And then, and I'm just kind of, you know, throwing out some highlights. Architecture, of course, during the 1980s in Paris, France, uh, was used to reimage the city. The great uh, fear uh, shared by uh, both President François Mitterrand at the time and his uh, French citizens is that Paris would remain frozen within a particular uh, Beaux-Arts period and would never move on to um, a contemporary expression of uh, urbanism. And so, of course, Mitterrand took it upon himself, really, to almost single-handedly appoint architects like I.M. Pei um, to design the Louvre, uh, massive redevelopment of the Louvre uh, through the use of glass pyramids. And, of course, there were many architects working in Paris in the mid-1980s, uh, such as uh, Jean Nouvel and even um, a Canadian architect, uh, Carlos Ott, who, was, who won a, an international competition at that time to design the new opera house. But I'd like to speak a little bit specifically tonight and briefly about the, you know, the word spectacle, the French word as a show, showtime. And so I thought I would mention the Steel Wheels Tour uh, by the Rolling Stones, which really set a new benchmark for the use of structure and architecture as spectacle. The Steel Wheels Tour uh, was launched in 1989. It was remarkable and important because the Stones hadn't toured for eight years. And the uh, set was designed by Mark Fisher, who was um, also you know, moonlighted as a professor at the AA in London. And at the time of designing this, he was also um, poised to design a pavilion for Expo 92 in Seville. And so the set was eight stories high and um, estimated to cost about $65 million. And I think what's interesting and kind of instructive when we look at uh, the phenomenon of spectacular architecture in Toronto, but certainly around the world, is the conflation of emotions driven into one intense, mind-altering experience. And that was the objective of this set piece by Mark Fisher. He used a set of towering chutes, pipes, chain mail, balustrades, and what he wanted to do was reflect magic and tribal identity. And he wanted, I mean, the job really was um, un understood and assumed that people would typically only visit this experience and enjoy this experience once. That was all the time they could, you know, be in, within the concert to enjoy it. And so he needed to impress 
very deeply this pyrotechnical visual explosion on the visitor. And he said, you have to build in a range of intense emotion. It's like designing a building as if it could be seen from dawn till sunset in two and a half hours. And so I think what's a, an important theme here with this kind of stage set design is that there's a conflation of time and that within a relatively short amount of time, uh, one is expected to experience many kinds of sensations caused not only here, but um, ultimately by a lot of spectacular architecture that is being built. And so um, this is another um, you know, view of the set. Mick Jagger himself you know, has for many years been inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright and Cecil Beaton. And the set itself, as directed by Mick Jagger, you know, picked up on cues uh, of the early work of Frank Gehry and also the Pompidou Center in Paris. So I think what's clear is that there is a tendency of the media um, and indeed of the public is to see architecture and artists through the lens of entertainment. When you kind of look at these two images with the, the shoots, the catwalks, and um, the stuff that's attached to the building, it's kind of interesting to compare the set design for steel wheels to the south um, elevation of the AGO. The idea in spectacular architecture, therefore, is to titillate and seduce and allow for what I call a drive-by experience of architecture, one that will amuse and invigorate and maybe inspire and intrigue as you drive by the pace of a car. And so within this, uh, the model of, that we're, we've now, we're all well familiar with, with the AGO, there is a kind of spectacular use of dimension, this very long uh, glass and, and wood timber canopy along the Dundas Street, which will, I think, completely reorient um, the approach to the gallery and the experience uh, and, and the connection to the street. I think that in Toronto, um, the Royal Ontario Museum, redeveloped by Daniel Levyskin, was at its most important and critical moment when the steel structure was left raw and um, unfettered. And this was truly a remarkable piece of steel sculpture. And that the, that's when it, it held all the ingredients of truly spectacular architecture. And as it will now become clad uh, with anodized aluminum, it will become, move, I think, very uh, dramatically from spectacular in the realm of the spectacular into something much more banal. I think these days, uh, everybody wants to be a rock star. And um, I picked up a piece in the New York Times Magazine last week by William Sapphire in, in, in which he, he spoke about the rock star. And um, so, you know, one of the editors at the Oxford English Dictionary talks about icon implies longevity, superstar suggests substance, rock star is about image. And for that reason, the rock star architecture or rock star architects has become absolutely critical for the re-imaging of the institution and indeed the re-imaging of the city. Uh, this particular image is um, taken from an individual who, you know, was trying to get on a CBS show, The Rock Star. 
And, and rock star status even applies to politicians. So of late there are, you know, the Democratic Party's rock stars, of which there are apparently two, one, one being Hillary Clinton. The implication, though, for architecture, and, and certainly for architects, is that this is something faddish and transitory. Everybody wants to be a rock star, and every city needs a piece of rock star architecture, even if it's a direct copy of something other. And so here we have the Edmonton Art Gallery, um, a competition won by Randall Stout, who's an American architect who practiced for seven years with Frank Gehry. I think also what we're seeing a lot of in the spectacular making of architecture is the idea of public uh, confession and public spectacle. Um, and so here's an image um, you know, taken from the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, seven years ago, manicurist Rosie Herman was a stay-at-home mom, and she and her husband were $75,000 in debt from fertility treatments while caring for premature twins, blah, 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 blah. She couldn't use her manicure products. And so the unraveling of personal and intimate stories on television and radio is something that we've all become accustomed to. And I think certainly we then have translated this obsession with intimate details of the self um, into architecture. And so at the Four Seasons, um, I think the sole uh, way that this building is, is uh, attempting animation of itself is through the massive uh, curtain wall, glass curtain wall, and the use of the human body as um, animator or spectacle uh, uh, item. And so the use of the human body to bring an animation, the body itself is put on display and is opened up there's a kind of voyeuristic interest in the movement and circulation of individuals within this architecture. We'll see how it goes when it opens in June. Similarly, you know, we put people on display and we put objects on display, and I, and I really don't see much of a difference between the two, whether it's cars or individuals. Spectacular architecture is easily achieved um, through the use of glass curtain walls. And what's um, undermined is a more subtle use and reading of the truly spectacular. Nothing comes close to the spectacular of nature and the meditative, uh, contemplative uh, stuff that issues forth from nature. And I think that you know, when, if we slow down, which spectacular architecture, of course, does not expect from us, when we slow down our reading of architecture and what really makes spectacular architecture, we of course um, come hand to head with you know, the making of the igloo, which without external support uh, or scaffolding um, is you know, carved from the snow and which creates this effect of a balloon uh, on the landscape and a spectacular uh, entry of light, which is subtle and unpredictable. So one of the things that we've discarded in the making of a spectacular architecture, I think, is a subtle um, understanding of light in the way that it enters um, a building. I think we've also um, sacrificed a sense of place and sight and the, and the way that um, architecture can be aligned uh, 
deeply to sight and something that I believe a certain body of uh, work produced in this country um, has been excellent at achieving. I'm thinking um, of the, so, sorry, this is the Smith House by Arthur Erickson done in the 1960s in West Vancouver. I'm thinking of the Lady of the Lake Chapel by Clifford Weens in the Capel Valley, Saskatchewan, in which these strong connections to the space beyond a worshiping space are created. I'm thinking of uh, Lethbridge University set within the Coulees um, in South Alberta, or the Coronation Park um, swimming pool by Peter Hemingway, now called the Peter Hemingway Pool, in which form and organic form combined with pink glass, bizarrely enough, um, have created um, truly an icon of uh, civic architecture. And I'm thinking of uh, many of the contemporary projects by Canadian architects which uh, take a serious read of site. In this case, the, uh, this is the First Nations Pavilion by Saussier Barot, Architects of Montreal, in which the building was used um, and, and understood to be just a wisp that uh, divided a coniferous forest from a deciduous forest in the Montreal Botanical Gardens. And I'm thinking of the way that architecture, even small-scale projects like this Eatonville Library by Stephen Teeple Architects, uses um, you know, large, dramatic um, gestures that reference the, the Highway 427 as it passes just along uh, to the west of this building, and that m maintains, though, some dignity and composure and relates to the residential scale of the neighborhood to the north. I'm thinking of the way that um, some of uh, Canada's best architects and uh, have, have aligned with the landscape. This is uh, Seabird Island School by the Pat Cows Architects, uh, which, which resonates with the coastal mountains and also picks up references from uh, the Salish people for whom this was built. And I'll end finally with um, what actually is a very low-tech and I think extraordinarily spectacular uh, intervention on a frozen lake in northern Quebec. This is a work by the Quebec City architect Pierre Thibault. Um, he travels two or three times a, a winter to Lac Tourjon, north of uh, Quebec City, and works with uh, various students and, uh, and guests carving trenches in the frozen lake and usually you know car carved with snowshoes and um, plants hundreds of candles typically candles from ikea um, and then lights them and these this image is uh, taken around five o'clock at night uh, the reflection of the light in the deep uh, ice trench creates this uh, startling orange geometry so for um, a few pennies less than $65 million, which the Rolling Stones spent on their steel wheels, something spectacular, something deeply aligned to the land, something that has something to say about light and place. Thanks very much. Thanks very much to all of the speakers. A very interesting, an array of things. I think that um, I'd like to start out with a question, uh, which uh, Michael 
began to, uh, to, to address or did address in terms of one project. But it's really a question for all the panelists and anyone who wants to speak to this. Um, what are we getting in Toronto? Is it going to be a raw deal? Is it in fact a kind of civic self-delusion? Or in fact, um, as Michael Awad, uh, we were talking today on the telephone and he mentioned the spectacle is a vitamin for a city. Is that what we're getting? A kind of dose of vitamin B12? Uh, with all these, uh, with all these millions upon millions of dollars worth of projects, um, I really, I really would like the the panelists to speak to that. Uh, who would like to go first? Lisa Rochon. I think I just decided. <laughs> That's to me is perfect. Well, I have to be honest. I spent the day at the zoo with my one of my little kids and. I was thinking about this talk a little bit, um, as look, when I was looking at animals that are, that, you know, as you know, animals have had to adapt, and so whether it's their gill systems or fish that can walk across land or the big hairy creatures that camels are, just so that they can survive during the cold winter nights in the desert, you know, they are entirely adaptable, and I think equally we are very adaptable. We need to be. We have to be in order to survive. And so I think um, what we're seeing here is a product of um, a society that has come to expect um, a reflection of what they're served up every day. And so I think the jolts of television, the jolts of video games, um, our lack of attention span um, have created in part the need and the increased need every day for more titillation. And I think we, we find it very difficult and almost uh, uncomfortable to move through a space that requires a slow down reading of architecture that really requires us to look at details and materiality and uh, you know the power of the diagonal and, and hidden hidden views um, and hidden secrets within a building that when you look at the steel wheels you know idea or you know most of the the super built structures in in, uh, in Toronto you're you see it all at once and it's a kind of in-your-face explosion of ideas um, and it's it's startling but it's absolutely meant to be startling and I think we absolutely want it and expect it. How about need it? What think, do you think about that? Well, I, th I mean, um, you know, this is the problem because I think it deflects uh, all our other needs. This, it is one need, certainly it is one need that we all have to be seduced. And who are we to suggest that uh, the media world and the high-tech world is uh, inappropriate? It is what we live every day. And so I would argue, beware that uh, the city becomes a pure exercise in the spectacular, because the spectacular only uh, serves its purpose uh, for short bits of time. And I really believe it doesn't hold your interest over a long uh, period of time. 
So we're in for a few thrills, and it uh, uh, doesn't sound to me like very much else, uh, drive-by entertainment. Michael, I wonder if you'd speak to the AGO specifically. Uh, well, I can speak to the AGO specifically by perhaps comparing it side-by-side -side with the ROM project, uh, because they're both, I think, uh, they're both important to the city. Um, I wouldn't refer to the AGO as, uh, as having embodied the architecture of spectacle. Uh, it is graceful and peaceful and refined and elegant, and it will have spaces within it that allow these the viewers to have an experience with the artwork. The spaces uh, are are graceful and and peaceful, and the, they won't in any way impinge on that relationship, the simple relationship between the viewer and a piece of art, a piece of sculpture, something hanging on the wall. Uh, whereas I believe the ROM uh, will embody a certain energy and frenetic quality that will largely get in the way of the experience of enjoying the artifact. I mean, right now, uh, for me, the most powerful experience in the ROM, the original ROM, or the original ROM that I knew, uh, were in the dark spaces with gray walls and... Uh, uh, perhaps a, dis, uh, a glass display which held a uh, medieval helmet and a single light source that illuminated that helmet and nothing else in the room. And the proximity uh, and the intimacy that one has with that artifact, just to stand there in a dim room and be with that artifact and contemplate it and really think about this artifact without being bombarded with uh, a rock show of space around you. I, I think it's uh, as Lisa points points out, uh, it is very short-lived, and I think from, for, you know, I think the ROM is going to stink of the '90s forever. It it is by no means timeless, and it never will be timeless. And really, I I I, I always use that gauge to to judge successful architecture, uh, architecture that doesn't uh, ground itself to a certain time in history, something that can transcend time and and literally hold power uh, for several generations, which the, which the AGO will do, and the ROM will not. It's that simple. Uh, so it, I, I see the AGO as uh, a moment where a great architect with extremely uh, strong limitations applied to the project, those of neighborhood and scale and budget, uh, and having to communicate and really respect the context, within those extremely difficult constraints, Frank Gehry has made a great piece of architecture. Whereas uh, the, blank, the blank design check of the ROM is much more akin to an immature, to a younger child looking for attention, someone screaming for your attention. But after the, after the, the initial uh, uh, shock wears off, we're going to be saddled with an institution that I believe has mortgaged its future in the pursuit of the quick, stylish fix. Okay. Uh, Christian and, and Dan, you're both involved in modernist spaces and presumably watching the transformation of these modernist spaces from within into, into postmodern spaces. Um, how do you see the space of the city then developing with these uh, mega projects around us? How is the city changing? Well, we were talking the other day uh, <laughs> just about uh, uneven uh, development a little bit, uh, which maybe was touched on a little bit earlier. Uh, I guess the the issue of how 
uh, uh, vast amounts of uh, capital are poured into very uh, um, to trophy you know, kinds of projects, uh, while uh, obviously uh, maybe larger organizational or um, uh, defining principles for for the vast majority of the development that is happening seems to be uh, solely in the hands of uh, developers. I mean, this is a critique uh, well established and well known. I, I just uh, not to go totally off topic, although please feel free to rein me in. I just wanted to say uh, also um, in follow up to Michael that I, I think that in the long term uh, we, we may actually really be scoring by having one of the the, the most understated Gary buildings of uh, of all time. It seems uh, that um, as we were going through the exhibition again, uh, it really struck us how um, uh, how uh, uh, broke uh, Gary's impulses are, and that uh, the projects almost seem to suffer at times from too much capital or too much technology, and that uh, his focus really on the reorganization of the spaces of, uh, uh, of the AGO um, is uh, re really to the benefit of, of this city and, and this institution. But um, uh, getting back, I guess, uh, on, on point, Surely you want to correct me, Daniel, at this point. Uh, well, when I was talking with uh, Lisa last week, um, she was talking about the two spectacles of Canadian architecture, um, uh, one being the spectacle of sameness and the second spectacle being that of you know, the grand gestures against sameness and that there isn't enough, um, uh, there isn't enough small, no, not small spaces, but um, middle ground. There isn't really a middle ground, or there's some major uneven development. Was that right, Lisa, or was I imagining that? You were, you, uh, yeah. Well, I I just um, I guess you know it's there's been so much hype and so much attention and so much money paid on the, for instance, the Superbuild projects in Toronto. So. Um, the governments, different governments have invested about 230 million and of course there's been a massive rallying of private sector funds, individual uh, contributions and I think that's been a very positive maturing of uh, the Toronto uh, citizenry. I think that's been a very interesting development and really it's quite um, specific to Toronto. It, it doesn't exist in, in any kind of similar degree in Montreal or Vancouver or certainly not Calgary. Um, and, um, but I would suggest that w in spite of all the focus and the media uh, frenzy feeding on the, the Superbuild projects, that it does not a city make. A city is an evolution and an, an, an unpredictable unfolding of, uh, of, of matter and fabric and uh, money that is brought to bear on uh, development. A lot of it's very bad, a lot of it can be very good. Uh, like San Marco uh, uh, Piazza in Venice was not uh, ever the work of superstar architects. It was about the work of capitalists um, allowed to produce what they felt the market could bear at the time. And, and yet, over time, something of a, a, one of the world's greatest civic spaces emerged. And so, these projects um, have privileged kind of an, uh, the, the aesthetics of the downtown. Uh, and, and it's not just the AGO and the ROM. I mean, I, I hasten to add that 
one of the projects that was never initially accepted as a super build uh, funding uh, model was the, the uh, Canada's National Ballet School. And I think it's quite a remarkable collage um, of uses within a one and a half acre site. But the super build is one idea of image reinvention in the downtown. It has nothing to do with the waterfront. It has nothing to do with Jane and Finch. It has nothing to do with Etobicoke or um, you know, the many disenfranchised neighborhoods of the city. And so as this city grows and um, is unable really to accommodate 100,000 people who move here every year, um, there is so much more work to be done outside of this really very tiny section of land. Yeah, if I can f follow up on that, I think it's an important uh, issue that Lisa brings up that the the relationship between the um, the architectural object and the, the public space. I mean, if you were to look at the disparity in in uh, capital, uh, just in the few blocks of downtown, there there has been and there will be over one and a half billion with a B dollars spent on quote important buildings. Yet. Uh, there has uh, there has never been the same commensurate amount of spending by the city of Toronto on the public space for its residents, uh, which is a startling, startling uh, situation. In fact, the amount of money that can go into public infrastructure in the last 10 years uh, beca because of a number of political forces has been whittled away to the point where the, the city is largely un, incapable of dealing with public space uh, on, on a scale of the city. We can, we can put band-aids in certain places, we can do a few high-profile small projects, but what's happening to, uh, what's happening to, the, uh, to, to the, the areas outside the core? Uh, it's, uh, a project came up recently uh, where um, a number of designers were asked to uh, were asked to act on a few public spaces because there was an initiative by a private foundation to uh, to try to create more of a richness in the public space, and what they chose to do and very peculiar they chose to uh, to act on let's say the TTC, which is very admirable, but instead of really looking at the TTC as a significant public space, they took one test case, which was the uh, I think the um, uh, one of the, the, oh, Queen Street, St. Patrick's subway station, and they hired a star designer, and that star designer turned it into something. And it happens to be near the AGO, it happens to be near the new uh, Opera House, so it was an interactive, art-filled, uh, projection-filled, performance-intense space. Well, it, I thought it was a bit ridiculous, because people are going to be going there anyway because of all these huge attractions nearby. What the city really needs to do is make something of uh, Castle Frank, make something of the Runnymede station, because this is where people live, this is where people go every day. Turn that into something rich. You know, th throw a million dollars into one of those stations and turn it into a nice place to start your day, as opposed to uh, taking a high-profile station and making it more high-profile. It just it didn't seem to make sense to me. And, and oh. of course, at Eglinton, um, and you were involved with this, Michael, there was a really wonderful, I think, very positive attempt mm -hmm. to revitalize the subway. And so through the invitation of uh, many different Toronto artists, the whole subway came alive, and it was actually 
interesting to walk through and it captivated mm -hmm. your interest. And so one of Michael's uh, photo, large-scale photo pieces was um, installed. It was a temporary installation, uh, but there were uh, paintings on the floor or words about books um, on the stairs, which yeah, I think stopped traffic and probably um, created some crashes. Um, but very healthy, very mm -hmm. good, and it was real. These were by mm -hmm. these were works by Toronto artists, and they had something to say about the city. Mm -hmm. There were samba lessons. The uh, t the Orc Toronto Orchestra played uh, a few times in a small reduced version. I think there were eight of them uh, doing a nice morning uh, performance. Uh, there were live performances. There were places for kids to to make art. The, I think OCAD had a table there with. Uh, some OCAD students help you know, doing a little workshop there for students. So it's, it's exactly that which can invigorate the public space. And really, I think we've been blinded largely by all the media attention and these uh, institutions that are reinventing themselves for good reason, but we really shouldn't lose track of the importance of public space and all of this. Um, Lisa, uh, oh, sorry. Okay, um, a few um, minutes back, you were talking about uh, patronage and the institution and uh, spectacular architecture lends itself towards uh, spectacular patronage and um, uh, as probably everyone knows uh, Kenneth Thompson the world's ninth richest man um, donated uh, the world's third most expensive painting to the uh, AGO um, Kakashta 117 million dollars um, I don't know, I think also in terms of like uh, uneven development within the city, there's also like an like uneven development within the AGO's um, collection. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing the Rubens and, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and much less interested in seeing his um, ship collection. Uh, which I, I believe will be one of the, your first experience of art as you come into the uh, the lobby and look down through this glass um, block of floor. Um, wait, you might like it. Wait, uh, wait. I'm very um, excited about the ships, personally. <laughs> maybe it's a guy-girl thing. So we have uh, we have a few minutes left, and I'd like to know if anyone in the audience has something to say uh, to any of our panelists, or a comment to make, or a question to ask. Yes. There is a question from the audience about what spectacular buildings the panelists have experienced. Lisa? Oh. Well, commodity and delight. You know, Vitruvius wrote about these um, ideas, and now it's about um, sex in the city. Um, and, and uh, you know, but when you think about the most transformative works of architecture you might have experienced, or the most moving ones, to me, these are rarely superstar um, rock pieces of rock architecture. The Bilbao is an exception. I think it is an, a deeply sophisticated piece of urbanism um, that also works as, a, as an exhilarating and moving piece of architecture. But I think that has a lot to do with Gary's sophistication as an urbanist and um, as a, a carver of light. Um, so I think it's quite kind of unequaled, you know, within the 20th century, quite possibly. Um, when I think about the, the architecture that matters, like some of the projects I showed tonight, um, Luis Barragan's house in Mexico City, which is a deeply spiritual uh, experience, 
uh, for anybody, religious or not, you know, when you walk up these narrow stairs and enter this courtyard, which is framed uh, with concrete walls but open to the sky, it, you know, it is deeply moving. And so I think these ideas of using architecture to move us um, have uh, been superseded by architecture that titillates, and uh, it's, a, it's a completely different take on what we have come to expect. Okay. Uh, Christian? Oh, just qu quickly, if I could add, um, maybe uh, because uh, of our practice, we're predisposed maybe to larger gestures. Uh, um, uh, we do like um, uh, the, these, uh, the, the idea of an individual uh, uh, and, and a creative project injecting a particular kind of character um, into uh, the 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 urban fabric, and I think um, where the uh, the problem occurs, of course, is when it becomes purely imagistic, purely uh, cover shot, purely uh, vacuous. And I think Louise did a wonderful job of enumerating a number of projects, uh, some smaller in scale, that really do focus on the phenomenological or or or, or uh, focus the success of these uh, buildings on, on the phenomenological impact and how they guide the. Uh, uh, guide the viewers through or, and, and the, what the experience of the space is like when I think when uh, uh, the project takes this into consideration fully uh, then uh, uh, then I'm willing to indulge some pretty extravagant um, uh, gestures uh, that do stand out that don't necessarily integrate uh, uh, fully with what everything everything going on around them but the, the context, context is an important issue there I mean a city such as Paris the, the general urban fabric of Paris, while being, let's say, quite pleasant, is mind-numbingly boring. The, the general fabric of Paris is entirely the same, but then you emerge from these neighborhoods into these moments, to these nodes, these moments of excitement and richness and fantasy and pageantry, and then you go back into these neighborhoods of sameness and daily life. So the, 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 question, uh, the question that was posed, uh, I think, is an important one, because in order to have to appreciate these great moments of architecture, I think we also need a really strong, yet perhaps banal, uh, fabric uh, between them. And we need a stronger urban fabric between them. And if it were possible, a little more distance between these, these huge nodal points also. And in Paris, okay. of course, the, you know, yes, they did their superstar thing, but 150 years ago when those limestone, you know, eight-story buildings went up, every single one of those apartments had the have the architect's name. And so the architect became one with the city, and the architecture became one with the larger idea of community um, living and, and thriving within the city. Yeah, it comes down to uh, public will and the ability to put down urban design guidelines that have some uh, authority and can be enforced. And really, in, unfortunately, in Toronto, we don't have that bureaucratic uh, or political structure in place to do that. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one more uh, short comment or question. Yes. There's another question from the audience regarding the design process and protocol. This is, this is a very significant development that's, that's really emerged, I would say, in the last five years in, within the practice of architecture through the protocol of request for proposals. So rare now in this country do we see open international competitions such as the one that was launched for the new city hall. Um, increasingly, 
firms are awarded jobs based on their square footage that they have produced in the past and the number of buildings within a particular type of building that they have already um, achieved. So if you're trying to design a school, for instance, in the city of Toronto or um, Etobicoke or, or um, wherever, you know, Saskatoon, your chances of winning that commission are very low if you haven't already uh, completed 10 schools. And, and so increasingly we have um, just again in the last three to four years massive mergers now where architecture firms will be uh, picking up and swallowing whole other architecture firms that's happening in Vancouver, throughout the West, it's happening a lot in Montreal where you had this wonderful atelier system of uh, firms and it's happening a lot in Toronto. And so what is mattering increasingly is uh, the, the amount of square footage you've produced, not innovation and your ideas. Okay, I, uh, can, I'm we just, a, can we just follow up just for? Go ahead. I, I have to take an opposite position here, and I hope I hope we can still be friends, Ty, after this, um, because uh, in a in a conceptual way, I say bring it on, because the pendulum swings, and right now where we are with all of this high-profile architecture and design going on. I think is a response to many decades of banality. And we, we live right now at a really rich moment in the physical development of the city. And I think the pendulum will s clearly, it is bureaucratically swinging back to a more bureaucratic way of building uh, landscapes and urban, urban spaces and so forth. But I think the pendulum will eventually swing back. So it's, uh, it, it really sucks to be in practice now if you're a good designer, because the pendulum's swinging away from design. But I have no doubt that in the next little while, we're going to produce a lot of crap because of these new policies. And the pendulum will eventually, in response, swing back to design. I think it, like fashion, uh, like everything else, it's very much cyclical. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you very much uh, to all the panelists. This has been great. And thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, to hear this and we hope that the thoughts that have been raised in this panel will continue to ricochet in your minds for a long time to come. I think that Toronto has a has a long history ahead of it of change in architecture and urban design and uh, we're all a part of that. Thank you very much and good evening. I, I would also like to thank you all, and I'd like to thank you, John. And I, I, this, by the way, this talk will be podcast. You can pick it up from our website. I think it's really important. Yes, it is a time of accelerated change right now. At least it feels that way, and certainly within this gallery, it feels very much like a time of change. I think it's really important to have these discussions for places like the Asia to be a forum and to, for there to be complete freedom of speech. So, Michael, your concerns about what anybody would think here about what you said, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine. No, you, you made... Um, we will continue these sorts of discussions. Starting in the fall, we're going to have a series, um, 21st Century Urban Culture, where we sit in it, what's going on, not just here in Toronto, but in the world. So look out for that starting in the fall. Thank you very much.